0: Hello and welcome back to the Millennial Ag Podcast, where agriculture is always on tap and no topic is off limits. Thanks for joining us today, your co-hosts Valiant Likely
1: and Catherine Lotts Beach. Listeners, we're headed into week forty-two, which it's like ten weeks away from fifty-two, which is close to a year. So it's I just can't believe how quickly everything's gone, Um, and we're halfway through the month or the year of twenty twenty-two, which just is is mind blowing, but. We're excited for this week's topic. Um, I was listening to a podcast the last week, uh, the Future of Ag podcast and Sarah Mock was on there and she had talked about exploitation in agriculture and that really kind of struck an interesting nerve and I'm like, I wanna dive into this a little more. So we've invited Sarah to join us today um, and I'll let her introduce herself and give a little bit about her background and what she's up to. Sure. Thanks, you
2: guys, both for having me. This is it's exciting to be here. Uh, So, yeah, I'm Sarah. Um, I'm currently a freelance ag writer and researcher. I kind of do all kinds of just weird jobs all over the place. Uh, Before this, I was the Washington bureau chief at RFDTV for about three years. Uh, And prior to that, I I spent some time at two different ag tech startups. And even before that, I uh, was at studying agricultural development and food security at Georgetown. Uh, and then I also was lived abroad for a year in India, South Africa, and Burkina Faso studying different agricultural systems and topics there. Uh, and long before all of that even, I grew up on a family farm in Wyoming, just outside of Cheyenne. And, you know, I basically thought I was gonna, when I, after growing up on the farm, I thought I was gonna go off and do something more important than agriculture. And, you know, being at Georgetown right after you know, the Arab Spring and that really important kind of news moment. All my classmates were obsessed with the geopolitical moment and what was happening and how we were going to, you know, be secure in the United States and going into the CIA and all of these kind of interesting global questions. But nobody was talking about the fact that there is no Arab Spring without the collapse in bread prices in the Middle East. There is no Syrian civil war without a collapse of Syrian agriculture in 2008. Food security is the foundation of kind of all of our global security and maybe largely all economies and all cultures and everything in the world. And I became that farm kid from Wyoming always in the back of the class being like, hey, but what about agriculture? (laughs) And so I realized that, you know, uh, I might have thought I was done with the farm, but agriculture certainly wasn't done with me. So I, and basically in my process of just trying to have every job in agriculture so that I can have the absolute most data before I choose which one is going to be my final resting spot. Um, wow. That sounds like I'm going to die. Uh, <laughs> now the, the, choose which one I think feels the most impactful. And a lot of that has been around kind of finding those questions and, and and answering questions that are important to me and about the industry and where I think it's going and about the future. And Yeah, so that's what I'm doing now is basically, you know, everything from helping nonprofit and and kind of organizations in ag communicate, helping farmers, uh, you know, find their authentic voice, um, writing articles and and kind of talking about some of these tough issues in agriculture as a freelance uh, journalist. Um, Yeah, I kind of run the gamut trying to be an entrepreneur out here and build a a business around kind of the communication and, and getting kind of at the core to just answer some of these questions that I think I have to, I have to know the answer to them before I can uh, you know, decide whether ag is where I'm going to build my future. What a great introduction and Sarah, we are so delighted to have
0: you here and we can relate to a lot of what you said, especially um, you know, going off and doing something else besides agriculture but what is more important than agriculture honestly Um, and we also love your point about how food security is national and global security Uh, we've said that many times throughout our podcast and we don't think that there's any truer words out there so we are super stoked to dive into this conversation and see where the see where the road takes us because um, you know we ruffle feathers every once in a while it seems like you do too so we're kind of excited
2: Yeah, I uh, certainly some feathers have been ruffled, but um, yeah, I mean, I am excited to be that this is a conversation and not just you know trolling on Twitter. That's all I could really ask for at this point. I for think, real. yeah, that's that's not a fun place to be at all.
1: <laughs> well, Sarah, do you want to just maybe explain to our listeners to kick this off what you mean when you are referring to agriculture being? Ec- exploitative, or exploration whatever in agriculture.
2: <laughs> totally, yeah. I uh, So for kind of the context, um, one of those questions that I was just referring to that I have kind of driven a lot of the reporting I've done and a lot of the work I've done and kind of some of the career changes I've made in agriculture is the question of whether or not it's possible to farm without exploitation. And I've, part of answering that question is just defining what exploitation is. And I think, you know, I got called out right away after I uh, started talking about it, about the def- the dictionary definition of exploitation, which is just like basically use uh, something to its full extent, not the type of exploitation I'm talking about. Um, you know, if, if someone told you they were being exploited by their boss, that would be a bad thing. You would not want that. that that's not them saying, I'm just being used to my like peak and I'm really enjoying it and everything's fine. Exploitation has a negative connotation. And I think from my perspective um, you know, kind of the working definition I have of exploitation is someone who is forced to do something because of lack of other choices that they're not being compensated for in a way that they see as fair. So, you know, when I talk about exploitation in ag, I think, and what I've talked about and, and kind of written about is there's exploitation at every level of agriculture. I think it starts at the farmer. I think you know, a farmer who has to miss every baseball game or every important event in their child's life because they, you know, there's no one else to run the planter. So they're going to have to do it for they're going to have to sit in that seat for 22 hours and just tough it out because there's there's no other options. Are they going to get compensated financially for that on the back end? Maybe, but probably not um you know if you if you feel like you don't have an another choice to uh to make there without making a sacrifice that you don't that is is not be that you're not being compensated for that in my in my vision is exploitation so i think you know not only are farmers exploited i think farm families are exploited i think they're asked to make sacrifices uh that or or made to make sacrifices that they don't necessarily want to make or feel like it are worth making I think farm workers are absolutely exploited and in kind of every way, you know, most farm workers are large, the American farm worker population is largely undocumented. You know, they're not well compensated. They don't have legal protections. Um, They are certainly not paid well. Uh, And then there's kind of the broader types of exploitation that I've talked about, you know, exploiting other species. Um, You know, if we think that American agriculture has made wildlife in america better off i think that would be uh, a hard point to argue uh even if we think you know if you, if someone who grew up raising you know meat poultry if we think broiler chickens are better off as a species or or chickens in general are better off as a species than they were before certainly they're more prolific than they were potentially than they were, you know, a few thousand years ago. But if we think that they're, you know, the the alterations that we've made scientifically to make them, you know, have huge mammoth breasts that make perfect cutlets at the grocery store has made them, you know, stronger as a species. I think it would be hard to make that argument. And I think that is, could be described as a type of exploitation. And then, you know, I think there's, there's like kind of public funds, public perception types of exploitations as well. Um, and you know, I think I'm sure many people have already turned, scrolled past my speaking right now because the word exploitation is really hard to sit with. Um, I think people, and some a bunch of people I talked to after I started writing about this, you know, said you're not talking about exploitation. You're talking about unpriced externalities, which is kind of an economic idea that a third party is is injured by an economic transaction where it's fair to both the parties who are making the transaction, but you know air pollution is an externality. Someone's paying for for gas that goes in your car and someone's getting the payment for giving you the gas, but no one's paying for the fact that people get asthma attacks because people are driving cars. There are unpriced externalities in ag and we've kind of all just accepted that because farmers don't have the ability to demand prices that they're never going to be priced and that we just have to accept all of these things, that this is just the way that farming is and there's nothing we can do about it. But, you know, I think one of the things that has inspired me to think about this exploitation question right now is because I think there's people really thinking about ways to avoid this exploitation. And, you know, in, in the blog post where I talked about this, I, I talk about a farmer in the Northern neck of Virginia named Chris Newman, who's, thinking very consciously about, you know, employee ownership, uh, indigenous land practices, um, you know, ways to support a farm and a business and to market products that are customer oriented and and that provide, you know, in telling his story and marketing his products, he's, he's adding to his community. He's adding to all of these things. And I'm sure lots of people are saying, yeah, that's like some hippie nonsense, garbage. But guess what? He made a profit last year. He's made a profit for six years. He's growing a successful business and he's growing it unconventionally and not, you know, in a way a lot of farmers would recognize. But the idea that you can't demand a price that pays for all the costs associated with agriculture or that there's no way to build a business that helps you get past that exploitation is proven to be is being proven to be false um so yeah i i think there's a lot of exploitation in ag i'm not like pointing fingers or or saying that there's like blame on any specific person at any specific time Um, but i think the idea that we're just okay with all of it
1: is gotta die and i appreciate um the fact that we can have these conversations and we can start this because I'm I work in big business agriculture or for big business agriculture dairies feedlots um, cow calf operations and 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 learning to understand some of the implications but also the efficiencies that come with that and how do we start balancing some of that because we can't feed a growing population off the land in indigenous practices at the way people want to consume and so how do we do we or how do we how do we combine those two or can we mesh some of those those conversations or start those conversations across the board because they're they're two different types of practices and the efficiency is a little different i think that
2: is a, a point that gets made a lot i would challenge that at best, we don't know that indigenous practices would work. I would say more truthfully, we do know that indigenous practices work. They worked for indigenous people for thousands of years on this continent and and really enriched the people who lived here. Uh, but I think, yeah, I think there's The question around how do we feed a growing population isn't an authentic one to be having in the United States right now. 40% of corn grown, 40% of 92 million acres goes into fuel tanks. We're not concerned about feeding, like agriculture in America primarily is not about feeding people by acre, not by dollar value, because by dollar value, California food crops are the the majority of American agriculture. Um, But... You know, Iowa is really great soil, the most incredible soil in the world for growing corn, but it could grow other things. It's not the only thing you can grow there. It's just the easiest thing to grow there with like very few people, large equipment, genetics that we've worked on for a hundred years. Um, it, it, it we've, we've built a system that kind of self-perpetuates itself, but it doesn't, that doesn't mean that there's not other alternatives that could work um and you know focusing more of our agricultural system around food and feeding people and feeding the growing population would do that and you know i think as compared to the system that we have now to me indigenous agriculture or indigenous land practices that that include food forests and agroforestry and you know in uh, harvesting wild crops and wild game is is as mu- as viable an option as a lot of other things that we're doing if not a more viable option
0: so well, there's a lot to unpack in this you know the first 5 minutes of this conversation um i just want to go back to your point about indigenous peoples living off the land thousands of years ago you know, in in North America, and um, I don't argue that they did, but I do think that their, well, I know their population was far less prolific than ours is, Um, and they had, they had a different situation going on, and I, you know, I, I understand, I think, the desire to, to be much closer to nature and, and a more natural way of doing things, but um, I, I'm just wondering if it's, if it's, if it's not if it's possible because it it's likely possible, but if it's feasible um, in our day and age and the way that people are used to eating, especially in the United States, because um, okay, so 40% of corn goes into gas tanks, fine, but um, is Iowa going to be able to grow avocados in January for the people who want to be you know eating just whatever the land provides or locally? I mean, we're going to have to have some serious shifts in our diets, our expectations, and
2: our wants and needs. Oh, totally. And I think if you would have asked me 12 months ago if that was possible, I might have had doubts. But then COVID happened and our lives changed in a week and I I don't know that I would assume that people can't change dramatically if they had to. Um. I am actually very confident. Humans are like the the greatest thing about being a human is how incredible, adapt, incredibly adaptable we are. Stockholm syndrome is a testament to how, you know, we can make anything work, literally anything. <laughs> um, and yeah, I think it would take dramatic change but I also think that we're seeing dramatic change. I think, you know, look at the last five years of the, of hurricanes, look at wildfires in the West. Dramatic change is coming for us, whether we want it or not. And, you know, well, there's natural events changing all around us and and climates are being fundamentally transformed. And, you know, folks who farm crops in, in Mexico and California are now looking to places as far north as Virginia because of how dramatically the climate's changing as as possible places to grow you know once what were once tropical crops that you couldn't possibly grow above you know the florida panhand or the floor the, the lower part of florida what's that called the peninsula of florida um yeah i i think i think things are right for change and you know i have for most of my career i would say i've been an insane pragmatist and thought you know it doesn't make sense to talk about things that you know, if if it's not palatable to your average farmer, should we really be talking about it? If if I can't convince you know any guy that I sit down next to at, at an ag conference in December that you know something's worth considering or, or worth not you know just ignoring completely and brushing me off, then then what's the point? But I don't. I don't. I think farming's changing more than people necessarily always want to talk about. And I see that by the way that I get pulled aside at conferences or get random phone calls from farmers and guys who, you know, see a news item or hear about a story and and want to call and say like, you know, everything about this story is wrong. 2019 was a great year on my farm. You know, I'm not, I'm not struggling. I don't know who is bad farmers, I guess. Um, And, and I hear those stories and I, I wonder where kind of the the people who are forward thinking in agriculture are. And I think it's much further along than we think. And I think there's a group of people in agriculture who have really radical ideas. And I think it makes sense to talk about the future and, and you know, push people's. I mean, certainly push people's buttons. That is kind of on brand at this point for me. But um, yeah, I don't know. I, I think it I think is it likely or is it palatable for most farmers no but that doesn't mean it's not a can't be an effective business and it can't eat their lunch if they're not careful well and I
1: think farm I think I think we all need to be a little cognizant of our impacts on on the land and on our resources you know it's been refreshing for me over the last year to start and on some of these car- conversations with carbon sinking and farmers starting to be carbon sinks and starting to understand how we can sustain the the planet a little bit better. Um, but but I also see how we've adapted to have these luxury lifestyles that we love to enjoy, and that's where we've come. Um, and so, do we want to go? Do we do we want to go backwards a little bit, or how? what's the goal of kind of being the indigenous lifestyle? Is it to live off the land, everybody just fends for themselves again, or do we, can we continue these luxury lifestyles of taking vacations to the beach because we're able to have a surplus of food. So we're not just growing it ourselves. You know, I don't have to grow all the food for myself. And that's, I mean, I I enjoy my luxury lifestyle. And if I had to, you know, there's a reason I kind of left the farm and ranch and I'll end up back there. But, you know, being in the tractor all day and then going home and butchering the cow to eat just doesn't sound like something I wanna do to feed my family on a daily basis. Yeah,
2: I think that's uh, uh, a little bit of a misrepresentation of what indigenous land management practices necessarily are. It's certainly, I'm certainly not advocating that everyone needs to go back to like hunter-gathering lifestyles. Um, or or what I think there is good evidence for the success of is an agricultural system that's more reciprocal, where there's more intentionality around perpetuation of of other species, of the soil, of natural resources, uh, where there's sensitivity to, you know, the environment in which a farm or farming area sit. You know, I, I think this is a common one, I will say, I highly recommend uh, Braiding Sweetgrass by uh, an author named whose last name is Kimmerer. Um, incredible discussion of kind of indigenous, the intersections of indigenous wisdom and scientific knowledge and understanding of botany. Um, and it just is also a beautiful book. Um, but yeah, I think there's first of all, also indigenous uh, advocates and people who can make these arguments much, much better than I can. Um, And so much of this I've learned from Chris, Chris Newman at Sylvan Aqua. But, you know, farming, indigenous farming practices are not going to be where every person is responsible for their own food. He delivers, you know, their farm sells in farmers markets and, and is just as available as your local grocery store is. But it, is the way the food is grown and the way the operation runs is respectful of uh kind of all the people, animal and resources place in the in the system and kind of it's it's i think a lot of people would kind of associate a lot of these principles with regenerative ag or something along those lines but it goes so much further than that um and and it wouldn't require you know it's not incompatible with smartphones it's not incompatible with vacations if anything Indigenous land practices and, and um, you know employee ownership of farms is more compatible with vacations than a farming currently is. Because farming currently, it revolves around a single family farmer who takes, you know, often leverages millions of dollars worth of personal assets or family assets to put, takes on a ton of personal risk. And then, you know, is hoping to get razor thin margins at the end of the day. Um, to kind of sustain the family. Whereas, you know, employee ownership of a farm, you're not, you're not the only person around who can do the work. You're not solely, it's not your risk alone. Um, You know, there's been lots of good evidence and research showing that the more people are on a farm, the more diversified it gets, the more businesses it has, the more, the more profit it has access to. Um, You know, most farmers experience that when their kids come back to the farm, but you know, if Multiple employees can be owners and invest in the future of the land together and kind of, you know, we move past a singular idea about, you know, family farms have to be owned by one family and that's the only way forward and this is the way that the industry looks and it always has to look that way. Um, You know, we can transform, that that could be a transformative idea in agriculture without saying, you know we have to give up everything that we like about the world and just focus all our money and energy on farming. I think that is the, uh, indigenous land values and indigenous agriculture are not incompatible with smartphones. So I think there's, there's a lot of salience in, in the points that you just laid out. But if in,
0: in um, reference to, you know, someone who you said just scrolled by, because you're talking about exploitation um, on our podcast, you know, I think probably a lot of, of conventional farmers would see this um, type of, of conversation as an attack on, on their current way of life and, and what they've built generations upon generations to come to. And, um, you know, I'm certainly not saying that American agriculture is perfect because nobody is and, and we are not. But I do think that we have come a very long way in learning how to care for the land and our animals um, in more beneficial ways for everybody. Um, you know, I grew up on a dairy farm, and um, we we were a single family on the farm, but many employees who helped us along the way. Um, and and now our, our business is bigger, and they can share in that larger profit. But my dad said um, all the time growing up that you do your best until you know better, and then you do better. And I think by and large, um, I mean most agricultural producers that I know live by that, and and are you know, doing their best to do, to do their best for their land, their animals, their family, um, and, and, uh, would have a really hard time saying that, um, you know, everything they're doing is bad and that they need to change.
2: Yeah, I hear that. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think to the point about exploitation, I'm certainly not saying everyone is being exploited or is exploiting all the time. That is certainly not the case to like the definition I talked about. We, you know, as long as people feel like they're getting a fair deal, a fair shake and that they, you know, are not making a sacrifice that they don't want to make and, and have other options that they could use instead, then that's fine. That's a a transaction that everyone feels comfortable with. And I don't think would be exploitation at that point. Um, And I know lots of I think a lot of this is tied into just we in the and and this is something I talked about in that post the idea of family farms, family farms is really important in the United States it has a lot of kind of connotations and ideas and and people feel very strongly about protecting family farms and and enriching family farms and you know I'm sure there are 500 different Um, GoFundMes right now that are in some way or another involve saving family farms. But the idea of a family farm is huge. Farms are not monoliths. All farms are not like all other farms. Like different farms kind of across the industry operate very differently and have very different priorities. uh, and, And, you know, what it looks like to be a farmer looks very different in different places. You know, if you're milking dairy cows, your experience 365 days a year that's very different than growing a grain crop in iowa where you you know might have a couple of months off in the winter where you you know maybe are doing the books or maybe you're planning for the next year but you probably have some time to go elk hunting or go snowmobiling um farms are not a monolith farming is not a monolith and when conversations around family farmers come up in any kind of broad narrative i think most farmers i know Go straight to, or or many farmers that I've heard go straight to the idea that well, I am a family farm. So, like you know, if you're trying to call me a corporate farm or or trying to, you know, to say you know say anything about oh, ah, the way my operation works, like just know I'm a family farm, and that gives you this idea in people's minds that they are very invested in and care a lot about, um, and in a lot of cases i think that's actually you know i think when the average person outside of agriculture hears the words family farm they generally aren't thinking about a 2500 acre corn and soybean farm in the midwest or like a ten thousand cow dairy in california Um, i think people who hear the words family farm are usually thinking about like 100 140 acre norman rockwell style you know kids playing in the hayloft wildlife market garden maybe um, a farm that 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 feeds their community very directly, and I think we've like I, I don't I've seen the industry dodge when when we have that conversation about you know what is a family farm, they're very specific about you know we we are family farmers ninety eight percent of farms in America are family owned so we're family farmers and they just let we just are letting the public believe that ninety eight percent of farms in America are those little Norman Rockwell style family farms and that feels transparent and like honest to us as an industry I think that's
1: you know so much oh go ahead I honestly think that's a great point and something you know Catherine and I have talked about a lot about is kind of that tell your story we're a family farm here's the pretty little red barn and a farmer with his pitchfork and we've been mustering with the idea of how do we almost rebrand tell your story or listen or sit with the consumer to see what they really want because yeah that family farm mentality to me or Catherine is my dad running the dairy or the the um feed yard or the um our cow calf operation um but it's and and it that's big like it's a big scale compared to back east because things are different, um, but it paints a different picture in people's mind. And is it wrong? Is it right? How how do we how do we start having those conversations among ourselves and our consumers about what's what's truly happening and let them decide where they want to purchase their food or you know we we do a lot of mining so we can have our fa- smartphones. We do a lot of mining so we can have oil and gas to put in our cars. So what? Is this sustain like, what are our goals here? Is it sustainable for another 100, 500 years? And we let just whatever happens, happens. Or are we trying to preserve it for another million years? And what is that going to look like? I think we need to kind of start having these conversations. Of what are our goals? Because we can all do a little better at taking care of the environment. We can all do a little better. But what are we wanting to, what picture are we painting? And what conversation are we having with the consumer, too, of what they want? Yeah, well, and I think to
2: that point, one of the challenging things about that narrative, about that the fact that that image of the Norman Rockwell tiny farm is locked in people's minds, in consumers' minds, as what a family farm is, what that really does is provide cover for, for people to not not evolve and not, you know, kind of stay on the cutting edge of of where agriculture is. I mean, so awesome. this is why, why do you think oh. that? Because I,
0: I started out, my family started out at a little Norman Rockwell kind of a farm, but to support my family for my brothers and I to be able to come back to the farm, um, for my parents to have a less exploited life, we grew. And, um, we still very much are a family farm, but we don't have a red barn. We don't have an upright silo anymore, but we are, you know, and we don't pretend to be something that we aren't. And, you know, we're not trying to lie to consumers, but I mean, the food system that we're a part of has evolved the way it has for a reason, because people want cheap, easy access to food so that they can do other things in their lives, like be bankers or lawyers or doctors.
2: Or work at McDonald's, which That's is the too. main th- which is the main thing that cheap food enables is people to work really insanely cheaply and not, um, you know, and, and we don't have to worry about it because we know that food is... Food, the main thing that people need to not die is really cheap, but yeah, no, I, I to to that point, like yeah, growing farms is generally like you know bigger farms tend to have a better idea of what their break even is. They tend to be run more like businesses, and businesses have good staying power, and they're they're better at you know including costs and responding to regulations and to to the question of how. I think the the idea of family farms provides cover for kind of, I guess, bad actors. I think because there's great farmers out there. Like, I mean, I don't know about your operation, but like your farm, I'm sure there's, there's really progressive people who are pioneering the frontier of regenerative agriculture of, you know, organic farms of intercropping and cover cropping and, you know, non-traditional, marketing models, and doing this incredible work, and people, and when there's one definition of a family farm, those people, and the, and the folks who, you know, are not doing as well, who are letting their dicamba drift onto their neighbor's fields, and over-applying chemicals, and, um, you know, irrigating irresponsibly, or, um, you know, for one one way or another, not farming as well as we should be expecting people to farm um, for whatever reason, those people are protected because they're a family farm too. And the, and family, anyone who can claim the idea of a family farm gets a little bit more sympathy and protection and, you know, cover from the fact that, you know, you're eligible for FSA programs. You're, you have, you know, some level of ability to to, I don't know, I think in a lot of cases, like not be held accountable. And, you know, I think that's, it's a, it's a confusing thing to me. Why, when I see kind of farmers that I would say are leading the industry, are pioneering some of these new practices and and really getting out in front, they should be excited about regulation. The idea that, (laughs) I mean, but the idea that, that you are, no, it's okay. But the idea that you are investing your, your time your talent your managerial kind of expertise in growing your farm in a specific way to make it you know to get ahead of um you know to provide cleaner water to your community to make sure that you're not a polluter to um you know maximize efficiency well provide you know making sure your soil your soil stays in place enriching local wildlife environments like that you're doing all of that and you don't want other farmers to have to do that too like you're that's a business disadvantage you, you should want like, to
0: yeah i don't know go ahead <laughs> those sound like um you know what we want regulations to be that sounds like in a perfect world right um but Valiant and i both work in agriculture regulations and what we see um is is regulation becoming a burden not because yeah there are there are regulations not to be a polluter to protect groundwater and clean and surface waters to you know not let your dicamba drift all those sorts of things and those Those are are reasonable and should be expectations for any good farmer out there. And I do understand that there are some bad actors out there. But what we've found with regulation is it has become a burden and it's 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 inhibiting business. Um, I mean, how come all the dairymen are leaving California? They literally cannot do business there anymore because of all the red tape they have to line their lagoons with, you know, 12 feet or 12 inches of concrete to make sure that it doesn't leak into groundwater when we know that there are other more economical um, choices available to them. So, yeah. just a point I wanted to make about how we regulations on, on our side.
1: Well, and I mean, yeah. the, oh. the, the system, like, down to, like, my my deep core values, I think regul the point behind regulations when like our forefathers started creating regulations and all that stuff was to put boundaries, to make it so that we were, you know, taking care of our neighbors, taking care of ourselves, not harming anybody and and doing good, but you start you start getting interpretations and somebody managing things or making sure you're like checking this little box on a checklist every day, but are are people actually like doing the work behind that little checkbox, um, and I and finding ways to help helps you know continue to protect groundwater continue to protect surface water our wildlife but and like good solid regulations are are good solutions if the interpretation by whoever's enforcing them is consistent and we get or and my interpretation of some things different than Catherine's and different than yours and I think that's on the regulation side where I get frustrated and we get a lot of pushback in our segment of the world.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, I'm not going to go out and say like, there's no such thing as a bad regulation. All regulations are good. That's certainly not something that I believe, but um, I think that there's, there's a, there's certainly an ag and maybe I'm particularly jaded about this because I have been in DC for three and a half years. <laughs> and so I only see that the really hard arguments against them and the really intense, see the most kind of intense advocates against them but yeah you know there's some there's some amount of you know fighting regulations is like fighting what consumers want and at some level like i i don't know you know a business has to respond to what consumers want and i I don't know not to say that it's always going to be perfectly enforced or that it's going to have exactly the outcomes that everyone wants because obviously Um, There's always, always unintended consequences with regulation, but, you know, there's been lots of good regulations that really have protected our air and water and and oceans and other natural resources and And public health, too. I mean, you think about pasteurization of milk. That's, I mean, it's not a point that can be denied.
0: It's true. Yeah. (laughs) So we sort of went down a regulation rabbit hole there, and I'm, I apologize for that. It's just that's the lens that Valine and I look through for 80% of our day. But, um, you know, we've had a really great conversation. We've been a lot of places, and I think, if anything, we've barely scratched the surface. We probably need you back for, like, three more episodes. <laughs> but, you know, to wrap up, I'd be curious to hear what you would say um, on how conventional ag and this new, this new kind of indigenous um, management agriculture that you've been talking about can start working together um, some you know some actionable ideas that make sense where we can all come to the table and uh, not be the jerks that we're sometimes
2: known for <clears throat> yeah, totally I mean I think the number one biggest thing about pursuing this kind of thing, which to a question you guys had um, you know the question of so many farms run in the red, you know what what do we do about that how do we how do we make farms more effective businesses? And to me, the answer to that question always, which I promise dovetails, um, the question to how to how do you make sure a farm is a successful business every year is stop selling commodities. You know, (laughs) I think I think um, a dairy farmer once told me being a 40 or like 80 cow dairy that sells commodity milk is like being a small town diner that sells dollar hamburgers because McDonald's does like would that is that a sympathetic argument to have would your community rise up and give tons of money to keep this diner open because they think that because it's i don't know i don't easier to sell dollar burgers than to do something else or because they feel like they have to do it because there's no other way to get people to pay you know how much it actually costs to buy the burger and hire someone to flip it and take it to your table like i think and and i will i can hear farmers literally like through the podcast right now saying there's no, there's no other options. Like I don't have time to, to put something else into my business to, to get out of commodities. And I totally agree. You know, they're probably in the middle of their 12 to 18 hour day right now. So hire someone, hire someone else to work on your farm and to grow an alternative business and to diversify. And I can hear the follow up to that complaint <laughs> being, we don't have any money. There's not enough margin on this farm to hire someone. Well, like, what do you have? Do you have land? have invite someone find someone that you don't hate and let them work into your business make them a part owner leverage the resources that you have is your is some part of your business profitable then fashion that profit into some way to compensate someone in the meantime while they help you know grow some part of your business and then they can kind of reap the rewards of what they did i think and and actually I'm very hopeful. I hear young farmers talk about different ways to do this and it's so funny because I think for a lot of young farmers it's coming from a completely different perspective. I know a farmer in Nebraska who, you know, says basically, I'm, you know, 29, I've moved back to the farm, I'm single. There's no one in my town. I need another human being under the age of 60 and I'll do just about anything it takes to get someone to move here and if that means paying off someone's student loans, like, I'll do it, I'll find a way to do it. If that means, you know, giving someone some acreage so that they can start their own farm and and build and become a neighbor of mine, like I'll do it. Like this idea that for for a very long time, for reasons that we've also kind of touched on, f- being the sole owner of your farm and, and being solely responsible and being the kind of boss and the financial head has been such an important part of being that family farmer. And I think the younger generation has a more uh, younger generation of farmers, which I guess at this point is like anyone under the age of 40 um, (laughs) has a very, has a, has a different view, has different priorities, is not as attached to the idea of ownership uh, of sole ownership. And I think for a lot of farmers, the the scariest part about that proposition of, of letting, you know, having someone come in and and be a part owner or, or buying into your business and, or creating some kind of what I'm describing is employee ownership. Um, it's scary because then how are you gonna leave it to your kids? How are you gonna let them be the sole owners as someone let you become the sole owner? And I think that that's just a hard that's just a question that kind of ag has to grapple with right now. You know, if if having someone someone else working full time on your farm means that you can go to your kids' baseball game, is that worth it to you? If you can go on a vacation with your family because there's another person full time on your farm is that worth it to you if you know being able to have more financial security and not have your kids see you stressed out every second of every day because you you just can't the the margins just aren't working out right now is that is having a little bit more security because you have a diversified operation because all the risk isn't solely on your shoulders is that worth it to you um and i think i again I'm not going to inherit land. I can't speak to this from like a personal grew up in it, have to deal with the legacy myself. But from my perspective, what I see happen to, or what I've seen happen to friends of mine, to farmers I know, to acquaintances is you spend your whole life sacrificing and, and scrimping and scraping and, and your kids kind of have, see all this tension and all the sacrifices that you've made and you miss out on so much and you, aren't able to you know you you've made more sacrifices than you wanted to and at the end of your of your life or your career you get to a place where you're like well I've sacrificed everything to give this sacrifice to you exactly the way it was for me
1: and I think that um see I see it a lot in my communities but that's why a lot of family farms aren't passed on to the next generation because they don't want to take that burden and that stress that they've seen there granddad and then their dad inherit. They want, they want some flexibility. And I think your points, you know, of diversification and just questioning, why are we doing this? Or what can we do to help diversify the operations? A great, great little nugget to leave our listeners with today, because we can all, we can all question the norm. We can all question the way things are being, what we're doing, how we're doing it. And that's what What's so great about being in American agriculture, though, is we have a voice and we have a brain and we can we can start questioning the, the norm and question the status quo. Just because dad and granddad did it this way doesn't mean I have to do it that way. I can do it partly their way, but let's try something new. Let's try some carbon sinking. Let's try no-till. Let's try grass-finished beef off the land. Let's try it. Let's see if it works, you know, and we can do it in little bits and pieces and see see how it's going to work and test the markets and talk to our consumers. So we want to thank you, Sarah, for coming on. Um, before we hang up, though, would you tell our listeners where they can find you um, at and how they can get more of your information?
2: Yep. Uh, you can direct all of the hate mail and just <laughs> <laughs> strong feelings that I'm sure you have to at Sarah, S-A-R-A-H underscore K underscore mock at twitter and um i'm on medium and linkedin sarah mock with an h uh i'm around um and happy to you know i've never really ever said no to like anyone who's reached out and wanted to talk on the phone with me so if you want to debate me or tell me how wrong i am or tell me how i completely missed the point of something please reach out sarah thank you so much for coming on to our podcast we really appreciate it you've given me
0: i know a ton to think about um, listeners, as always, we would love to hear your feedback and, you know, it doesn't have to be hate mail. It could be, you know, discussion points. We don't have to be jerks to each other all over the place, but you can find millennial lag on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and you can also email us. Um, just go to our website, www.millennialag.com and you can find us there.
2: Thanks and have a great week.